Well, we're continuing on this week in our series in Romans, and I thought it was quite fitting that as we're finally able to gather together inside once more, that Paul's getting to the very practical instruction to the church body. And so I thought it was fitting that that's where we've arrived here this morning. I would invite you to now bow with me once more, and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once more for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We thank you that from cover to cover, there is not one wasted verse, not one wasted word, that every one of them has been anointed by you, given for our good, and that we can learn from it. And so, Father, we know that it is by your Holy Spirit that you grant us understanding, to give us insight, to understand it. But even more, Father, we are dependent, just as David was, on your Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can live it out, Lord. For it is not by our own strength or might that we can live in obedience to your word, but it is by you and by your spirit. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, your one spirit, who fills us by faith in your Son, would you grant us understanding to both hear and to do what your word instructs us this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, your servant. May the words be yours, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a story printed in the Calgary Herald from June 27th of last year, 2020, of a man named Reef Calder, who was competing in a golf match play event at Rivers Edge Golf Club in Okotoks, Alberta. Now, he was just preparing to putt for victory in his match when he heard screams suddenly coming from the Sheep River that runs directly alongside the golf course. Now, those screams quickly turned into obvious calls for help. They were calls of distress, of panic. And so the golfers immediately dialed 911 on their cell phone, and then he ran and tried to spot what the trouble was in the river below. Calder later said, I could see down the river that there was a floating tube, and about 30 feet up the river there was somebody just tumbling and going under and tumbling and going under. I could see how far away the nearest person was compared to where I was. And even though there was quite a treacherous cliff and a jump down to where I could get to him, I was the closest and the only chance for him. It was one of the wildest things I've ever seen, said fellow golfer Reese Royer. I was on the seventh tee box about 250 yards away from Reef. I had no idea what he was doing. But he jumped so far that he literally disappeared from sight. I'm not sure how he even got down that ledge unscathed. It must have been about 100 to 150 feet to the river's edge. Calder then proceeded to, after jumping down this cliff, proceeded to wade out into the fast-moving water to rescue the boy who had managed to cling onto a boulder for dear life. Upon reaching this panic boy, Calder then grabbed him, and he put him on his own back, piggyback style, and then took him safely to the shore. Another eyewitness of these events of this incredible rescue said, it was literally the most heroic thing I have ever seen in my life. That kid was drowning and Reef just risked everything, sacrificed everything, jumped in to save that kid. Now, of course, we hear about dramatic rescue stories like this, and we sing the accolades of the rescuer, and, and they're, they're branded or labeled a hero. 
But I want to ask you in the context of this story what may seem a rather odd question. And the question is this. Which part, which physical part of Reef Calder's body was the most important in saving that boy's life? Which part? Was it his ears that heard the boy's screams and caught his attention in the first place? Or was it his eyes that spotted the boy tumbling in the river? Was it his legs that enabled him to jump down the cliff? Or was it his, his feet that carried him as he ran? Was it his arms that reached out to the boy, or was it his hands that took hold of him? Was it his back on which he carried the boy to safety, or was it his heart that was pumping blood throughout his body to give him the energy to do what he was doing the entire time? So I ask again, as I, as I label all of those parts, which one of them was the single most important in saving that boy's life? Well, the answer is... None. None was the single most important. For while all of those parts, all of them, along with many more which I could have functioned, but we're not here for an anatomy lesson this morning, all of those parts have a specific function. And yet they all had to work together as one body in order to save that drowning boy. For if just one of those parts I mentioned had failed, the rescue would have failed. And the boy would very, very likely have ended up drowning. Therefore, not one part was unimportant. Not one part was more important, for they were all equally important to the success of the rescue mission. Now, in just the same way as we come to our text this morning in Romans chapter 12 and verses 4 and 5, I'd invite you to turn there with me if you have not yet done so. Please turn there, Romans chapter 12. Here the Apostle Paul begins to draw this analogy, this comparison of the church of Jesus to a physical body. Now in verse 4 we read, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, what this means is that while the various parts of Christ's body, the church, while they all have different functions, none are more important or less important. None of them. For they are all equal in importance in that they must work together as one body in order to function with the task which the church has been given, that great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And so we must work together as one in this way to save a lost world that is drowning in sin. And so today, though we have all arrived here as individual people, we all have distinct personalities and distinct functions and gifts, and uh, if we were to go around this room, we could begin naming all of the differences that are here in this room. Wouldn't that be a fun exercise? But yet, though we all are different We have gathered together, and here we are one. We are one under our head, who Paul uses in this analogy as none other than our one Lord, who is Jesus Christ. And he goes further to say that we are each filled by the one Spirit of God. 
And then we are joined together and united as one body of Christ, set apart for God's purposes and for his glory, and to bring about that rescue mission to which we have been tasked. And so today, as I said at the outset, I truly can't convey to you in words how blessed I feel to be standing here this morning and to be looking back at your faces looking back at me. It's just so good. And I just feel so blessed to be able to look out and and to see so many familiar faces and to know uh, each one of you personally. And that as I look at this room as a collection of people, I could go down each row and say, you know what, that person is so good at this. And that person is so gifted at that. And we could... I could spend all day and we could go through all of the ways that we all contribute to this one body that belongs to Christ. And so this morning, I hope you see your place in this body, that we are all connected in this way. And, and I can just tell you, it doesn't get any better than this. And, and this last year and a half has just driven home to me in such a concrete way how important the body is, how important fellowship is, Because for these long stretches, in the absence of that togetherness, of that immediate fellowship, we just realize how much we are missing something that is so vital that each one of us was created by God to enjoy in this body together. It simply doesn't get any better than this. And so this morning, as I I just said, as I see many different people with many different gifts and functions in this sanctuary, I only see one body. One family, one church, and I, for one, just feel blessed to be one part that fills out one function of this whole body. And I hope that you feel the same. For quite simply, there is no single part of the body that is intended or designed to live the life of faith alone. Just as there is no organ or part of our physical bodies that is designed to live apart from the whole, not one of us is designed by God to live apart from the whole, to live in isolation, to to live a lone ranger sort of a faith. We're not designed that way. We are designed for each other and to need each other. But of course, just as there were challenges and obstacles for the first church way back at Rome to overcome, in a practical sense, of becoming and functioning as one unified body, so too there are for every church in every time since then. And this one is, of course, included. For though through faith in Christ, we, as we've been going through in Romans, through faith in Christ, we have been justified. And by the Holy Spirit right now today, we are being sanctified. We have not yet been glorified. We have not yet been glorified in Christ's presence. And though our our hearts long for glory, and they long for heaven, and as as Brother Reuben expounded on last week about what what we are designed for, what is coming, that heaven and glory are coming in Christ's presence, we are not there yet. And that means that so long as we're still in this world, we must each individually and as a church body collectively, still contend with temptation, with sin, and with Satan. And it's why it's often said that there's no such thing as a perfect church. Because if you ever found one, don't join it. Because if you did, the moment you did, the church would cease to be perfect. Right? Isn't isn't that the truth? 
It's like, oh, there was a perfect one. I'll join in. And then suddenly you realize that, well, you brought your own things with you. And so this reality came as no surprise, of course, to the Apostle Paul. It didn't surprise him that, that Christ was working to redeem imperfect people and gathering them together into a collective meant that they would be an imperfect collective. And yet, knowing this, that every single church he would minister to would deal with these exact same issues, just in different ways, he thankfully addressed these things and he gave them practical instructions as to how to function best as the body of Christ. And so here we begin these specific teachings to the collective body. And his first teaching is in verse 3. And it is this, each member is called to humility. Each member is called to humility. Verse 3, For by the grace given me I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has distributed to each of you. Now, let's break it down line by line. The first line is this. I want you to take note of Paul's opening phrase, for by the grace given to me, I say to you. For by the grace given to me, I say to you. Now, if there was anyone in the whole world who could have so easily paraded their extensive credentials before them or boasted of their incredible revelations of the Lord or the intimacy they had enjoyed with the Lord or the things they had achieved in the Lord's name, if there was anyone in the whole world who could have done that, it was certainly the Apostle Paul. And yet he didn't. He didn't. And this is important. There's a fictional story told of a a pastor, a boy scout, and a scientist. And they were all passengers on a small airplane. And at some point in their flight, the pilot came back to the cabin and he explained that the plane was going down, but there were only three parachutes, but four people. Maybe you've heard this, this story before. You know where it's going. Three parachutes and four people. The pilot then added, you know... I obviously should have one of the parachutes because, well, it's my plane and I own the parachutes, so therefore, I get one of them. So the pilot throws on the parachute and jumps out of the plane. The scientist then stood up and said, well, I should have one of the parachutes because I, in fact, am the smartest man in the whole world and everyone needs me. And so he proceeded to take one of the parachutes and jump out of the airplane. Well, this left the pastor and the Boy Scout. Well, with a sad smile, the pastor turned to the young boy scout and said to him, You are young, and I have lived a rich life, so you take the remaining parachute and I'll go down with the plane. You can relax, pastor, replied the boy scout. You see, the smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. (laughs) Have you heard that one before? Some of you have. Now, You see, here one man's boast about being the world's smartest man and the world needing him, it actually led to another man's salvation. For though the Apostle Paul, like I said, had many reasons of which he could have boasted and said, I am the most important in Christ's church. I am the one who's who's above all of you. He doesn't do that. Instead, the Apostle Paul begins this practical instruction to the church by humbly reminding his readers, and likely himself, 
that he, just like them, was a recipient of God's grace. For by the grace given to me, he was grounding himself in this, that he had done nothing to earn or deserve this grace any more than the people to whom he was writing. By the grace given to me, I say to you. Elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, even later on in his life, we see Paul's humility even more on full display when he wrote to Timothy, his young protege. He said to him, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now imagine this. The Apostle Paul, the man who has done all of this, saying, Christ came to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. It's been put another way, and it's like this. The ground is always level at the foot of the cross. The ground is always level at the foot of the cross. There is no pecking order there. There are no better or worse people there. There are no more important or less important people there. There are no more deserving or less deserving. Instead, at the foot of the cross, we acknowledge that we are all sinners who have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that further, we are all deserving of God's wrath. And the one and the only thing that stands between us and getting what we deserve is God's incredible mercy by pouring out his divine wrath against sin upon his son rather than upon us. And further, the one and only thing that makes any one of us worthy to receive what we most certainly do not deserve by being forgiven, saved, and adopted into the family of God, the only thing that makes us deserving of that is God's amazing grace. That is it. And so Paul said, by the grace given to me, I say to you, he was not elevating himself above the people he was writing to. And so as we return to the Apostle Paul, I would contend still that next to the Lord Jesus himself, there was not one man who was more important and instrumental to the global spread of the gospel than him. And yet we saw that Paul called himself the worst of sinners and remained humbly grounded throughout his faith, throughout his service, humbly grounded in the fact that he too was a sinner saved by grace. So I simply ask, if that was the Apostle Paul's attitude, then what do you suppose our attitude should be? Now furthermore, Paul also understood that the more that God used him, and the more success that God gave him, the more humble he should become. And this begs the question, why? Because in the world, it's the exact opposite, right? The more successful you become, the more accolades you receive, the more elevated your status, and, your, and, and, and just to boast and to be looked upon and, and almost hero worship, that is what is normal in our world. And yet, Paul had the exact opposite attitude, that the more the Lord used him, the more humble he became. And why is that? It is because the measure or the strength of the faith and the correlating measure of the success does not come from oneself, 
Rather, it comes from God as a gift. And Paul realized that, that all that he had, including his own faith and all of his incredible ability and understanding, it did not come from himself, it came from God, and therefore he would not and could not boast in it. As Dr. Roy Lauren puts it, we should not become overly impressed with our own importance. After all, whatever success we have, whether considered significant or insignificant, is due to the faith which God gives us. For we are not indispensable to God, but rather God is indispensable to us. We are not indispensable to God. God is indispensable to us. So whatever our position or function within this church body, may we each begin on this same foundation that Paul began upon. By the grace given to me, I say to you, And so at this place, we begin with humility before the cross, and we remain there throughout our lives of faith, that we are all sinners saved by grace, and that whatever degree of faith or gifting or success that God gives us is from God, and so he alone deserves the glory and the credit for it. And so this is the first way that we see the body works best, is that each member is called to live from a foundation of humility. Second, the Apostle Paul would tell us that how the body works best is when each member is called to be one with the body. Now, oneness or unity for Christ's body is the very thing for which Jesus prayed for us in his long prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. And we can read that in John chapter 17, and there I'll highlight for you part of his prayer in verse 23. And this is what he prayed for us. Praying to his father, he said, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now Jesus knew that the unity of his body would be a key ingredient to the success of the mission that he would give to them to make disciples of all nations. He knew this. But of course, he also knew that our enemy, Satan, knows this as well. And so he knew that our enemy would be relentless in his attacks to seek to undermine unity in order to divide and conquer the church, which are the agents of God's work in this world. Now, over this past year and a half, we've all been living through with COVID-19, and we know from, from everything our world is going through that it has caused divisions through every level of society. And no church body is immune to this either. Over the past few months, I've had conversations with multiple different pastors spanning three different provinces in one state. And every single pastor that I speak with over over this span of time, every last one of them has told me that it has personally been a very challenging time for them in this regard. It's not just one church body in one country it's, it's every congregation in every country in the whole world is simultaneously dealing with the exact same thing. Isn't that just incredible to think about? And as I think about that, we would have to be utterly spiritually blind not to recognize the enemy's fingerprints all over this. Of course, seeking to divide and conquer those who are his chief threat, that is the church. However, as we acknowledge this reality... I ask the question, does our Lord Jesus 
knowing what was to come in the world and when he prayed for us in the garden that they would be one, does he have a provision for us, his body, to combat the enemy's schemes to divide and conquer us? Does he have a way? Oh, of course he does. He did not leave us without provision. Now, you may recall from earlier in our series in Romans that one of the biggest issues within that young church in Rome was the simmering tension between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Now, this division had been literally millennia in the making. This was not something that could just be overcome and sweeped away overnight. And so this division was right there in the fledgling church in Rome. And what it boiled down to was that the Jews still thought that they were better than the Gentiles because of their special relationship with God through the Abrahamic covenant and the law of Moses. And they just couldn't shake that sense of superiority that they were better because they were under Abraham and had the law of Moses. On the other hand, the Gentiles, they looked at the Jews and they actually looked down on the Jews because they basically blamed the Jews for having killed their own Messiah. You as a nation, you, you killed your own Christ who is finally sent to you. And now God has cut you off as a result. And so in this way, the, the Gentiles counteracted the Jewish sense of superiority. And they looked down on them. And so as we see that both sides focused on each other's differences... And, and the things that they thought that the other side was doing wrong. And they began to focus on those things. And as they did, it began to cause division within the body. And it's why back in Romans chapter 10 and verse 12, Paul had already addressed this head on when he emphatically stated to both sides, to Jew and Gentile, he said to them, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and he richly blesses all who call on him. So here we see that Paul points to the one Lord as the one provision to demolish the differences. And here we see that the Lord's provision for the unity of his body is none other than himself. And we see elsewhere in his writing to the church in Ephesus... In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, our call to worship, he says there is one body, which includes Jew and Gentile. He starts with this statement, there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. And so he's making the, the very obvious point he's belaboring here, there is not different bodies, not different faiths, not different spirits, not different lords, but one. And that one Lord is our one head. There is no two-headed church. There is only a one-headed church, and Jesus Christ is that head. And so the provision is that as our head, so long as we stay focused on Jesus Christ... We stay focused on him rather than on each other. The unity of the spirit will prevail. For remember that Jesus is the same Lord of a brother in the faith that you may disagree with. The same Lord. And remember that Jesus is the same Lord of a sister in the faith that you may have just had an argument with. The same Lord of both of you. And so because you both have the same Lord and the same head, that means you are both spiritually connected to one another as parts of one body. 
Now, you may be an elbow, and the other person may be a kneecap, but if Jesus is your Lord, then you are members of the one and the same body. In fact, Paul takes this even a step further when he says at the end of Romans 12, verse 5, and each member, listen to this, each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. And you think, really? Like, I'm an elbow and I belong to the stinky foot? Really? I belong? Like, I I don't know. I'm higher up in the food chain here. I'm higher up. I'm part of the arm. I I shouldn't belong to the foot. But no, Paul says, each one belongs to the other. Now, this means that regardless of any differences that the hand may have with the foot or the elbow with the knee, We resolve our differences in peace from a foundation of humility, not thinking too highly of oneself. Or failing that, we then agree, again, in humility. We agree to disagree, and in peace, we carry on with one another, recognizing we are still a part of one another. And so as we we consider all of this, let me just say that whatever selfish self-centered notions that we may have about being a part of the body or what it means to belong to the church, we just need to confront those head-on within ourselves and just purge them and get rid of them. For the body does not belong to you or to me. Rather, you and I belong to the body. We belong to each other, which as a whole belongs to Jesus Christ, our head. And so as we humbly focus on our Lord Jesus, the one who unites us, the enemy The enemy is so frustrated because he loses his power to divide us and to stop the mission of the gospel, to rescue that world that is drowning in sin. And so in unity of the Spirit under our one head, the mission moves forward in power and lives are saved and eternities changed. And so how the body works best is this. Number one, each member is called to humility. Number two, each member is called to oneness. And thirdly, each member is called to serve the whole. Each member is called to serve the body. Verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Now, as I said earlier, each believer has been divinely gifted in some way for service to Christ's earthly body, the church, and by its extension to the world. Each believer is a unique creation of God. God has no duplicates. He has no photocopying machine. He has no no cookie cutter molds in heaven. Every last person is unique through all of time. Therefore, no member of Christ's body is unimportant for all have a unique gift and role to play. And next week, we're going to look at some of those specific gifts in the body that Paul lists. But today, I'll just highlight this line. If a man's gift is prophesying, or rather, I'm going to say, fill in the blank with whatever gift that God may have given to you. If a man's gift is fill in the blank, let him use it in proportion to his faith. I want you to underline this. Let him use it. Let him use it. You see, God's gifts to his children are not intended to sit up on a shelf and look pretty. That's not what they're given for. God's gifts are given to be used. And if anyone says, well, I don't have any gifts. I don't have anything that I could give 
back to the Lord in, in service, well, that is in fact to call God a liar. Because his word right here emphatically tells us and elsewhere multiple times that everyone is gifted in some way to the good of the whole. We all are, which includes you here this morning, if you are in faith in Christ. And so, God is not interested in our excuses. He says, are you being faithful and using the gift that I have already given to you? Now, as an example, when William Booth, that famous founder of the Salvation Army, discovered that he was in fact going blind and he would very soon lose his eyesight entirely, He did not surrender to despair or excuse himself from service. Rather, with a positive outlook, he told his colleagues in the mission that just as he had served Christ while he could see, he would now do his utmost to serve him even when he could not see. And he said, perhaps never will a blind man have done as much for the kingdom as what the Lord has intended for me. And so you see, God has gifted you, and he desires for you to use your gifts as a good steward of his grace. Though the gifts are diverse and the functions many, each one of them and each one of you and I together need to work faithfully as one body under one head to help bring the good news of Jesus to a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our one Lord, our one head, we as your one body humble ourselves before you to acknowledge all that you have done for us and that by the grace that you have given to us, we are equal. We are equal in our sin and yet, Lord, we are equal in your favor. That, Lord, that even while we were yet sinners, that you died for us that your favor upon us was so great, your love so incredible, that, that you said, I'm going to redeem them. And I'm going to set them apart in my name. And I'm going to make them one. Because I am going to be in each one of them. And because of that, they will be united in purpose and in love. And that, yes, the enemy will seek to divide and to bring disunity. And yet, Lord, you have made a way that is greater. For greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so today, Lord, we choose as your body, your family, to ground ourselves in your provision. And that, Lord, by your spirit, do a good work in us. Lord, not only for our own sake, but for the sake of this world, that we would be effective, Lord, for the mission you have given us. That we can stand firm in the good news of Jesus Christ and hold it out to a world that needs to hear it, that needs to be saved. And it is only you who can save. And so, Father, thank you for each member of this body. Bring encouragement to our hearts today. And, Lord, do a good work in us, we pray. And now, Father, as we prepare to share around your table in obedience to your command to remember you, we pray, Lord, that you would add your blessing to each one of our hearts. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we will prepare to share in communion and I would invite those who have consented to help serve to please come forward at this time.